Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you national and international news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 12th of August for the listening week that begins the 13th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week, you'll be hearing first from uh, one of our primary sources, theroot.com, for quite a few articles, and then we'll move on from there. First one written by Candace McDuffie, posted on Wednesday, the 10th. Stacey Abrams has tested positive for COVID-19. Her spokesperson, Michael Holloman, confirmed the news Wednesday. Stacey Abrams has tested positive for coronavirus. Her spokesman, Michael Holloman, shared the results Wednesday. This news comes a day after Georgia's Democratic nominee for governor gave a speech at a downtown Atlanta brewery. Holloman also shared that Abrams tested negative for covid before the Tuesday event. Abrams has been vaccinated twice and received a booster. Currently, she is safely isolating at home. Here is the statement from Hallman. This morning, Stacy Abrams tested positive for COVID-19 during routine testing. She tests daily and tested negative via PCR Monday and negative via rapid test yesterday before her Georgia Thrives economic speech. She is fully vaccinated and boosted and experiencing mild symptoms. Consistent with CDC guidelines, she will isolate at home and looks forward to traveling across the state to meet Georgians as soon as possible. It's possible that several of her upcoming events might be canceled. The politician was scheduled for a Pod Save America podcast, taping planned for Saturday at the Cobb Energy Center. Those in attendance for Tuesday's events wore masks, even though Abrams spoke from a podium without one. In addition, her campaign asked visitors who plan on stopping by their Decatur headquarters to wear masks and complete a rapid test before coming into the building. Last month, a poll showed Abrams was behind Republican opponent Governor Brian Kemp by five points. This is her second time racing against Kemp. Back in 2018, he defeated her in the gubernatorial election. Abrams' campaign this year has centered policy issues specific to Georgia, as well as abortion rights. Kemp's main focus has been on the economy and segregation. Next by Merjani Rawls. It was posted on the 1st of August. Harvard defends use of affirmative action ahead of a Supreme Court case. The Ivy League College cites previous cases, such as Grutter v. Bollinger, to further commit to diversifying its emission practices. The Supreme Court is due to hear a challenge involving the use of affirmative action in college admission pardon me, admission processes in late November. Last week, the High Court agreed to decouple the two cases against the University of North Carolina and Harvard. 
So Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson can rule in the UNC case. Ahead of the critical ruling, Harvard University filed a brief saying affirmative action is necessary to create a diverse student body. From the Harvard Crimson, Anti-Affirmative Action Group Students for Fair Admissions is arguing the school's admissions process discriminates against Asian Americans during the admissions process. Harvard's admission policy violates the Constitution's 14th Amendment by considering a student's race. SFFA argues that Harvard and UNC institutions discriminate against white and Asians, pardon me, Asian applicants, by favoring black, Hispanic, and Native American students. Harvard's brief cites cases like Grutter v. Bollinger and Fisher v. University of Texas, where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of precedent to show their practices align with these rulings. This following quote from the Harvard Crimson, Nothing in the text or history of the 14th Amendment suggests that universities must uniquely exclude race from the multitude of factors considered in assembling a class of students best able to learn from each other, that brief said. Absolute neutrality has never been a universal constitutional principle, Harvard argued saying that the framers of the Constitution's 14th Amendment saw race-conscious race measures as necessary to ensure black people's equal participation in society following the Civil War. Harvard's website cites Asian American student acceptance at 25.9% and African American students at 15.9% out of a total of 2,320. Lower courts have ruled in favor of Harvard and UNC, but the university remains steadfast in its mission to diversify its student body. Harvard has repeatedly studied and continues to evaluate the importance of student body diversity to its educational objectives and whether a race conscious pardon me again, race conscious admissions process remains necessary to achieve them. But as the district court observed, we are not there yet. No alternative is presently workable, states the brief. Until that changes, Harvard must be allowed to consider race as one of the many characteristics in admissions to achieve the compelling benefits of student body diversity. SFFA's reply to Harvard's brief is due on August 24th. Decisions in both both cases would likely come by July of next year. Next by Kaylin Womack, posted on the 12th. One in four teachers are told not to talk about race, finds a survey. Teachers who teach social studies and English reported being harassed about policies on race and bias. As expected, the wave of anti-critical race theory legislation would make teaching difficult for the teachers who include CRT topics in their curriculum. According to a national survey from the RAND Corporation, one in four teachers be reported being told by school officials to limit their speech about race or racism. The State of the American Teacher and the State of the American Principal surveys 
found a third of educators were told to limit their classroom conversations about racism and gender studies. About one in four social studies or English teachers said they've been harassed about policies regarding racism and bias. This is the first glimpse of what educators' reactions are to the new limitations on teaching. The survey noted 54% of teachers and principals opposed the legislation, and the numbers were even higher for educators of color. This following quote from NBC News, It's heartbreaking for our youth who won't be getting the high-caliber education that they could get from a multimedia, multicultural, global era, said Tony Diaz, the writer, activist, and professor who started the Libro Traficante movement a decade ago. Smuggling, Forbidden Chicano History, and other books from Texas into Arizona to defy a ban on Mexican-American studies in that state. Diaz, who's a professor of English at Houston Community College, said the numbers reflected in the teacher survey show the damage that censorship campaigns have done to the morale of educators everywhere. The RAND survey said teachers raised concerns they weren't being allowed to include more diverse perspectives in their curriculum and struggled to square their lesson plans with district-wide and statewide policies on critical race theory. I have had parents come in and say, if this is what we're going to teach, pardon me, if this is what you're going to teach, my student doesn't need to know about this, an unnamed teacher said in the report. That's the end of that quote. As of June 2022, UCLA's School of Law CRT Forward Tracking Project found that anti-CRT measures have been taken in literally every state except Delaware. The politicization of education has taken a toll on educators. The survey found educators who reported being harassed about political issues considered leaving their jobs. Think about it. Black students in the schools where anti-CRT measures have been enforced have had to watch their own history being silenced for the sake of their white peers and those parents to avoid their guilt. Then they may have seen their teachers leaving the school after losing the fight to include CRT in their curriculum. Nearly every anti-CRT complaint has come from the mouth of a white parent, never their child. Next, also by Kaylin Womack, it was posted on the 12th. Florida teacher resigns after his Black Heroes pictures are taken down. The school district will be conducting a full investigation following the incident. A teacher from an Escambia County public school resigned this week after what he called racist actions by a school district employee, according to the Pensacola News Journal. After decorating his classroom with black historical leaders, the district employee in question took them down. Michael James, a white man, had put up a bulletin board at O.J. Sims Elementary School with images of Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Colin Powell, and George Washington Carver, says the report. James said the district employee who removed those pictures thought the images were, quote, age-inappropriate. James told the news journal, It really floored me. I've been teaching special education for 15 years, and it just really floored me when she did that. 
Well, this is Florida, the land where leaning even this pardon me, the land where learning even the smallest piece of black history is considered dangerous and alarming. This following quote from the Pensacola News Journal. James chose the board's theme because the majority of the students and the residents in the neighborhoods that surround O.J. Sims are black, and he wanted to motivate his students with inspirational leaders they could easily look up to and see themselves. James, 61, of Daphne, Alabama, sent his letter to the governor Monday night. He officially resigned from his position as an exceptional student education teacher at O.J. Sims Elementary School on Tuesday morning. Superintendent Smith said teachers are permitted to decorate their classrooms with educational materials, and he was unaware of any policies that would prohibit a teacher from displaying pictures of inspirational American heroes on their walls. End quote. James sent a letter about the situation to Governor DeSantis, parentheses, who probably could not care less, and the Escambia County Superintendent Tim Smith. Charlie Crist, the Democratic nominee running against DeSantis in the midterm elections, previously criticized the governor's role in enabling behavior like this. Crist said in a statement, This is the sad reality of Ron DeSantis's Florida. A teacher in a predominantly black community comes into their classroom to see posters of historically black American heroes, including President Obama, taken down for being inappropriate. Crist said ultimately such insensitive actions shortchange the students, and he's right, I was hurt seeing the hurdles I had to go through to get my high school to celebrate and acknowledge black history. I can't imagine not only losing the power to do so, but also watching my teacher lose that power as well. A spokesperson for the Escambia County Public Schools said in a statement that the office is in the process of conducting a full investigation. Next article by Angela Johnson. Pardon me, I'm noticing this is an archived article, uh, but I don't believe I've ever had a chance to read it. It comes from June, posted June 10th. Pampers partnering with Allison Felix to improve black maternal health. The leading diaper brand is committing $250,000 to improve health outcomes for black mothers. At the root, we've dedicated plenty of coverage to the racial disparities in maternal health. Black mothers in America are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues than other women, even though 60% of all maternal deaths are preventable. Leading diaper brand Pampers wants to do its part to support black moms by committing $250,000 over the next year to address these systemic issues preventing them from receiving equitable health care. And they are partnering with Olympic gold medalist Allison Felix, to help raise awareness of the crisis impacting black moms. The issue of black maternal health is personal to this Olympian. Felix was diagnosed with severe preeclampsia at week 32 of her pregnancy, a complication that can have life-threatening consequences. With elevated protein levels in her urine and high blood pressure, she was admitted to the hospital for an emergency C-section. The diagnosis was shocking to the world-class athlete and went completely against her birth plan. 
Black maternal health is a cause that is very close to me for so many reasons. After experiencing some of the scariest days of my life giving birth to my own daughter and realizing I'm not alone, that really pushed me to want to advocate for other moms so they can experience the pure joy that comes with being a parent, said Felix. You can't change anything with silence. So I'm proud to partner with Pampers to support their commitment to addressing the maternal health disparity. A key component of Pampers' initiative is a $100,000 partnership with the National Birth Equity Collaborative to improve the quality of care black mothers receive and decrease maternal mortality in our communities. Through this initiative, we will be able to support the expansion of our birth equity trainings, educating clinicians and healthcare practitioners to shift toward a culture of anti-racist practices, said Inas Mahdi, Vice President of Training, Practice and Evaluation at the National Birth Equity Collaborative. Pampers has also developed a way for others to support their effort. For every share of their hashtag RaiseCareDeliveryJoy video on Instagram, pardon me, this was during the month of June, the company will donate an additional dollar up to $10,000. Melissa Aceves, Senior Brand Director and Equity and Inclusion Lead for Pampers at Procter & Gamble said, Knowing the systemic issues affecting black moms in America today means we have no choice but to continue to act. We are determined to keep fighting for better outcomes and lower maternal mortality rates because only when we raise the quality of care will we be able to deliver more joy. As part of its ongoing efforts, Pampers will also work with the March of Dimes to expand bias training for healthcare professionals and continue to build strategic partnerships with other leading organizations in the field. Next, also by Angela Johnson, it was posted on the 11th. YouTube's favorite dad is changing media's image of black fatherhood. Belief in fatherhood's social media footprint is a celebration of black fatherhood, and that's spelled B-E-L-E-A-F. According to research shared with The Root from Dove Men Plus Care, less than half of black fathers believe that the media portrays people like them accurately, and over 80% of black fathers agree that we need more positive representations of black fatherhood in mainstream media and popular culture. But Glenn Henry is trying to do something about that. The husband and father of four shares... Oh, pardon me, the husband and father of four shares all of the hilarious and heartwarming moments from his everyday life on social media as belief in fatherhood. And he's built a huge following with over 340,000 Instagram followers and 1 million YouTube subscribers. I got lost in his Instagram feed, which is loaded with videos of the simplest moments like cutting his son's hair and dancing with his daughter. His popularity got the attention of the folks at Dove Men Plus Care for their hashtag Celebrate Black Dads initiative, which highlights real-life examples of black dads doing great things. We spoke with Glenn Henry, a.k.a. Belief in Fatherhood, 
about his mission to take hold of the narrative around black men and fathers in the media. The Baltimore native spent most of his childhood with his mother as his father co-parented from California. He says he started sharing positive images of black fatherhood to inspire other men who may be uneasy about the responsibility. I don't think fatherhood was possible for me until I saw another good father. And once I did, I felt so overwhelmed with belief in myself, he said. Now I understand that I can screw up and everything will be fine. I didn't know until I saw it and realized that the real power is in transparency and getting a glimpse into someone's real life. Henry acknowledges that traditional gender roles have allowed us to believe that men go to work and women tend to the children, but he is quick to let you know that he is all in when it comes to fatherhood, sharing tender moments and teaching tough lessons with his kids. I'm not just dad to kick it. I'm doing the grooming. I'm clipping the nails and everything, he laughs. As he grew his following, Henry has always wanted to share content that contradicted the negative images of black fathers, typically portrayed in mainstream media. The man's role, especially in a sitcom setting, is usually like a buffoon who can't do anything right, or is just sitting on the couch taking up space. He added that positive images of black fathers are rare, so when you see one, it's treated like a phenomenon. I think that's why my stuff is celebrated the way it is, he said. Henry says the best thing we can do to change the narrative is to encourage more dads to find a platform to share their stories. We have to stop allowing the powers that be to portray us in a certain light. We have to become the media and change that, he says. When you don't share your story, you give other people permission to make their own version of it. Still reading from TheRoot.com. This one's by Noah A. McGee. Pardon me. I misspoke. It is by Maisha Kai. And it was posted in July, July 30th. A woman of color is the least likely to receive mentorship. How can we unlock her potential? Entering its second year, Unlock Her Potential, the industry heavyweight mentorship platform launched by Sophia Chang, is seeking its next class of mentees. What's better than being the baddest bitch in the room? Paying it forward, which is what music management impresario turned producer turned author slash screenwriter Sophia Chang is doing with Unlock Her Potential, the platform she launched last fall to give women of color one of the key components they most often lack on their career paths, mentorship. Research has revealed that very few women of color get mentored, the Unlock Her Potential homepage explains. Just as bad, many don't even think to seek mentors. That's how systemic racism and patriarchy work hand in hand. It's time to equip women of color to ascend to the C-suite, run the shows, direct the films, and take over. The manifesto continues. It's time to break up the boys' club that has kept the gates closed off to us for so long. As reported by The Root last October, even a small commitment can make a tremendous impact. Created for women of color of all ages, Unlock Her Potential grants each of its chosen mentees 
one hour per month with a top professional in their chosen field for an entire year absolutely free. This year Chang has built upon her already impressive roster of luminaries, many of whom have been household names for a long time. Moving into year two, we knew we wanted to expand our roster of mentors, not volume, but industries, she said. We wanted more representation in the culinary world, which, like so many, is white male-dominated. In addition to existing mentors, Don Davis, editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, and Natasha Fan of Kogi, we have now chefs Kwame Onuwachi, Ming Tsai, and Travis Lett, as well as Bill Addison, food critic for the L.A. Times. She added, I'm also deeply humbled that 80 of our year one mentors are returning. Applications for year two of Unlock Her Potential will be open from August 1st through the 31st. And if you know anyone that wants to apply, they go to unlockherpotential.com. Also archived from July by Kaylin Womack. The first black country club becomes an historical landmark. Shady Rest Golf and Country Club was created for black people who were denied membership to private clubs. The National Park Service has added Shady Rest Golf and Country Club, a listing on the National Register of Historic Places, according to Patch.com. The very first black country club in the whole country will now be considered an historical landmark as should every historically black site. Scotch Plains is a predominantly white, parentheses, currently and historically, town in New Jersey, home to gorgeous big houses and fancy golf clubs. In all my years living next door to the town, I wouldn't never, would have never thought a black country club existed there. Shady Rest was originally a property called the Westfield Golf Club, which was brought, pardon me, which was bought in 1921 by a group of black investors known as the Progressive Realty Company Incorporated. The club was a recreational space for black people who were not allowed membership to other private clubs due to segregation. According to Preserve Shady Rest, the club became widely known and hosted some of our biggest icons, including W.E.B. Du Bois, Billie Holiday, and Duke Ellington. You could play golf, ride horses, dine, and listen to live music. Unfortunately, in 1938, the property went into foreclosure and was given over to Scotch Plains Township. Here's a quote from Patch.com, more on its preservation. Located at 820 Jerusalem Road in Scotch Plains, Shady Rest is now considered a national landmark. It is listed among all the buildings, sites, and districts across the nation worthy of preservation because of their significance in American history, architecture, archaeology, engineering, and culture. We could not be more pleased, said Scotch Plains Mayor Josh Losardo in a statement, for a number of years, the volunteers of the Preserve Shady Rest Committee, chaired by Tom Donatelli, have been steadily working toward achieving this important designation. 
The listing will further ensure that Shady Rest will remain an American landmark for perpetuity, enjoyed for generations, protected from development, and a living reminder of a dark era of this nation when African Americans faced segregation. Much of the 1800s architecture had to be shaped up to totaling to $1.1 million in rehabilitation, said the report. The historic features of the building were restored, including the chimneys, ballroom, walls, and fireplace. Councilman Matt Adams said renovations will continue, but encourages folks to come take a look and get a glimpse of the history. As we continue to renovate and expand recreational facilities town-wide, we hope many residents who have not yet visited Shady Rest take the opportunity to experience this local and now nationally listed treasure, said Adams via Patch. Our next one was posted today on the 12th by Angela Johnson. Nine great banned books by black authors that you need to read now. These books are beloved by readers everywhere, but they're also heavily targeted by conservatives. There's a slideshow. I'll just click through. My love of books comes from a genuine desire to make sense of the past, learn new things, and hear different perspectives. But there are plenty of conservatives out there who are on a mission to keep that from happening. Across the country, there have been efforts to ban books from libraries and schools that deal with issues of race and sexuality. And it's no coincidence that many of those books are written by LGBTQ or authors of color. We've rounded up some of our favorite books by black authors who are, pardon me, that are frequent targets of conservatives, accused of everything from sexually explicit content to making white people feel bad about slavery. Haters just can't keep these titles out of their mouth. Hood Feminism Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot is written by Mickey Kendall. In Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot, Mickey Kendall looks at the feminist movement, which she argues is focused on helping those with privilege gain even more. Kendall writes that the movement is neglecting issues like food insecurity, quality education, and public safety, all of which are feminist issues that primarily impact women of color. In 2021, the book was placed on a banned list released by Republican Texas State Representative Matt Krause, Krause, who argued that all of the talk about race in the book might make some, a.k.a. white, students feel uncomfortable. The Hate You Give, written by Angie Thomas, to say that Angie Thomas's young adult novel, The Hate You Give, was a success would be a massive understatement. It held a place on the New York Times bestseller list for 50 weeks, received a Coretta Scott King Book Award, and was adapted into a feature film. But it also was the target of a whole lot of conservatives who loved to ban the book for violence, profanity, and being against the police. The novel, inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, centers around a teenage girl who witnesses one of her childhood friends being shot by police. All Boys Aren't Blue is written by George M. Johnson. 
All, bo All Boys Aren't Blue is a collection of beautifully personal essays by George M. Johnson. In the book, they share their experience growing up black and queer, from the bullying and abuse to first loves and special moments with their grandmother. Johnson gives readers a look at everything beautiful and painful of their experience. And the book received plenty of praise, named one of the top teen, pardon me, top 10 teen titles of 2021 by the Young Adult Library Services Association. But of course, conservatives get lost in the profanity and the LGBTQ themes, which they are quick to call sexually explicit and even pornographic. The American Library Association named it one of the most, one of the ten most challenged books of 2021. And The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye is a classic piece of American literature and a work that solidified her place as one of our most beloved authors, but it is also heavily targeted by those who accuse the book of including offensive language and sexually explicit content. The book was listed on the American Library Association's list of the most challenged books of 2013 and 14. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings is Maya Angelou's first memoir. In the book, she writes beautifully about her childhood after being sent to live with her grandmother in the small town in the South. Angelou shares personal stories, including her abuse at the hands of an older man. Although the book is autobiographical, it stays on the banned books list pardon me, that accuse it of being anti-white and including sexually explicit content. Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi found its way onto the A ALA's top 10 most challenged book list in 2020 because of statement the author made in public. It was also hit with claims that it contains selective storytelling incidents and isn't inclusive of racism against all people. Hmm. And the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. The autobiography of Malcolm X is the story of the legendary civil rights leader as told to Alex Haley. According to a January tweet from Books to Prisoners, Seattle, this book was banned by a Tennessee State Department of Corrections prison. The prison returned the book to the nonprofit, which donates books to those who are incarcerated with a note that read, Malcolm X Not Allowed. And James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain. James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain tells the story of a 14-year-old boy finding his identity as the stepson of a Pentecostal minister. The book was banned twice in New York and Virginia, in cases accusing it of being, quote, rife with profanity and explicit sex. And another by Toni Morrison, Beloved. Toni Morrison's Beloved is a New York Times bestseller, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and a popular title on an English class syllabus. It tells the story of Seth, a freed slave who is still haunted by her past. This book appeared on the ALA's 
top ten most banned book list in 2012, accused of sexually explicit and violent content as well as its religious viewpoint. And that's the end of that list. Next, I'll take some time for international news. This comes from the Associated Press via the Daily Camera Sunday 7th edition. Why Kenya's presidential election on Tuesday is so important. Dateline, Nairobi, Kenya. Kenyans are voting Tuesday to choose a successor to President Uhuru Kenyatta. After a decade in power, the race is close and could go to a runoff for the first time. One top candidate is Raila Odinga, an opposition leader in his fifth run for the presidency who is supported by his former rival, Kenyatta. The other is William Ruto, Kenyatta's deputy who fell out with the president. Both tend to focus far more on domestic issues, raising the question of how either will follow up on Kenyatta's diplomatic efforts to quell the tensions in neighboring Ethiopia or disputes between Rwanda and Congo. What's at stake? Kenya is East Africa's economic hub and home to about 56 million people. The country has a recent history of turbulent elections. Even then, it stands out for its relative stability in a region where some elections are deeply challenged and longtime leaders, such as Rwandan President Paul Kagame and Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni, have been declared the winner with almost 99% of votes or have been widely accused of physically cracking down on contenders. Kenya has no transparency in campaign donations or spending. Some candidates for parliament and other posts are estimated to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to gain access to power and its benefits, both legal and illegal. What are the main candidates' platforms? The 55-year-old Ruto promotes himself to the young and poor as a hustler who rose from the humble beginnings as a chicken seller in contrast to the elite backgrounds of Kenyatta and Odinga. He seeks greater agricultural productivity and financial inclusion. Agriculture is a main driver of Kenya's economy and about 70% of the rural workforce is in farming. In his final campaign speech on Saturday, he said, if elected, his government will deploy 200 billion shillings a year, which is $1.6 billion equivalent, to increase job opportunities. The 77-year-old Odinga, famous for being jailed while fighting for multi-party democracy decades ago, has promised cash handouts to Kenya's poorest and more accessible health care for all. In his final campaign speech on Saturday, he said that if elected, his government in its first 100 days would begin paying 6,000 shillings, or $50, to families living below the poverty line. What do voters care about? Odinga and Ruto have long circled among contenders for the presidency, and there is a measure of apathy among Kenyans, especially younger ones in a country where the median age is about 20 the Electoral Commission signed up less than half of the new voters it had hoped for at just 2.5 million. Key issues in every election include widespread corruption and the economy. 
Kenyans have been hurt by rising prices for food and fuel in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that comes after the financial pain of the COVID-19 pandemic. More than a third of the country's youth are unemployed. When will Kenya have a winner? Official results will be announced within a week of the vote. To win outright, a candidate needs more than half of all votes and at least 25% of the votes in more than half of Kenya's 47 counties. No outright winner means a runoff election within 30 days. The previous presidential election in 2017 made history when a top court overturned the results and ordered a new vote, which is a first in Africa. If the courts again call for a new vote, such an election would take place within 60 days of the ruling. Candidates or others have a week after the results are declared to file a petition to the court, which has two weeks to rule on it. If you want, pardon me, I want you to know that we as a country are at an inflection point, Odinga told the crowd listening to his campaign speech Saturday. Either something very good will happen or something terrible will happen. He vowed to shake the hand of his rivals whether he wins or loses. Ruto said Saturday he will respect the decision of the people of Kenya and won't accept violence or participate in anything that undermines the Constitution. Kenyan presidential candidate William Ruto greets supporters, oh pardon me, this is a caption under the picture, at his first final electoral campaign stop in Nairobi. Kenya is due to hold its general election on Tuesday, August 9th. So moving to BBC News, just for the update on that story. This was posted 11 hours ago, it says here. Kenya elections, a long wait for Raila Odinga and William Ruto in a poll count. Media tallies show the two leading candidates, Raila Odinga and William Ruto, are neck and neck. It says, We anticipated that people would try to hack our systems. We assure the whole country that our systems are actually secure. That came from the Electoral Commission. Social media has been awash with allegations that fake results have been uploaded as the count is verified. Based at a cultural center called BOMAS in the capital Nairobi, officials from the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission are busy verifying results. Officials are comparing photographs of result forms from more than 46,000 polling stations nationwide to physical forms being brought to center by officials from each of 290 constituencies. This is to ensure that the results match. This is witnessed by party agents from the main parties who, according to one official, Mr. Chebukati, says, keeps they keep stalling by turning a straightforward exercise into a forensic one. Counting in some polling stations was also delayed and travel to Nairobi, especially by officials from far-flung areas, could be a further factor in slowing things down. 
Verification was also halted for a time on Friday after a scuffle broke out, allegedly involving someone without accreditation, seen with a laptop, but it was said not to be suspicious. How are Kenyans feeling? There is a sense of anxiety in the country, as disputed elections in the past have led to violence or the whole process being canceled. Following the 2007 vote, at least 1,200 people were killed and 600,000 fled their homes following claims of a stolen election. In 2017, huge logistical errors led that Supreme Court to annul the result and order the presidential poll to be rerun. Officials are under pressure to get things right this time. The country often grinds to a halt during elections. Activities across the country have slowed, and schools remain closed at least until next week on Monday. In Nairobi's Central Business District, the usually busy streets are mostly deserted. Allegations of election rigging are as old as the country. It was part of politics even before multi-party elections were reintroduced in the 1990s. But the push for free and fair elections has never faltered. After the violence that followed the 2007 election, political parties and activists argued for the use of technology instead of physical registers, which could easily be manipulated. This year's election is the third time technology has been used, but it has yet to deliver an election that has not been challenged in the courts. Meanwhile, a group of top civil servants told reporters on Friday that preparations for a smooth handover of power would get underway as soon as the Electoral Commission announced the president-elect. Our next two articles are continuing to honor both Bill Russell and Michelle Nichols, who recently passed. This first comes from TheRoot.com by Keith Reed. It was posted August 1st. Bill Russell was the biggest basketball player to ever live. The late Celtic player, coach, cast a massive shadow over the whole country. I caught Bill Russell's glare as I descended the stairs in Boston's TD Garden before a Celtics game in 2007. His six-foot-ten frame, I'm six-four, was still imposing. Russell was in his early seventies then. I was a reporter in my late twenties covering sports business in Boston, which meant covering the Boston Celtics, the team Russell led in the 50s and 60s, to a still unrivaled streak of 11 championships in 13 years. He gave a slight nod, nothing else, and it was one of the few times, even covering professional sports and athletes, that I felt truly small. The man was a giant, not just owed to his superior height and arrow-straight posture that made him feel taller than he was even as a senior citizen, His understated gestures could trigger anyone's humility, a testament to the fact that his lifetime of leadership and change-making made him the biggest person in any space he occupied, even a 20,000-seat arena on a night Celtics hosted the Lakers. Russell died at age 88, leaving a legacy larger than most of us. Russell wasn't just a player who changed his entire sport with his dominance— He was a vocal civil rights activist in the Boston of the 50s and 60s. In case you missed it, LeBron James, himself an athlete outspoken about social justice, 
said last month that he hates playing in Boston because fans there are, quote, and I'll edit this, racist as F. James was talking about the Boston of 2022, a city that's majority non-white and has its second consecutive non-white woman mayor, along with a newly hired black police commissioner. The Boston of Russell's heyday was a city of segregated schools whose racism was immortalized in a photo of a black attorney being jabbed in the gut with a flagpole, old glory still attached, by a white guy who was big mad about the forced busing of black kids to previously all-white schools. Russell's was the Boston where racists broke into your family's home, smashed a trophy case, and took a dump on your bed while you traveled to away games. That Boston, that America, and the racists in them who couldn't shrink Russell. Oh, pardon me. That's, I'll read that again. That Boston, that America, and the racists in them couldn't shrink Russell. Instead, he grew bigger, big enough to write articles in national outlets about the racism he faced, big enough to march on Washington for jobs and freedom with MLK, big enough to publicly support black folks in his adopted city who protested for their kids' right to attend desegregated schools. He was big enough to get on a plane to Cleveland and, along with other black athletes, challenge the convictions of the biggest boxer of his day, Muhammad Ali, who refused induction into the army during the Vietnam War. Russell never shrank. His last few years in Boston... He was not only a player, but the team's head coach at the same time, the first black athlete in a major American sports league to do so. He went on to coach other NBA teams and work in the front office. He never stopped standing up until it came to Colin Kaepernick, whose protests of police brutality Russell supported by kneeling, wearing the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Twitter Pierce. Russell was so big, even Shaquille O'Neal shrank in his presence. According to Mark W. Wright, the co-founder of Wright Creative, pardon me, he said, a former staffer at ESPN, the magazine, managed to get Shaq and Russell, his idol, together for an interview. It was clear as soon as Russell showed up that he dwarfed his seven foot one, three hundred pound, three hundred plus pound protege. Shaq's countenance immediately changed. He knew he was hardly the biggest man in the room anymore, and he was okay with that, said Wright. He looked as enamored with Russell as I was. He greeted Russell, as you'd expect the son of an army sergeant would, with a firm handshake. After that, Shaq barely spoke allowing Mr. Russell to carry and lead the conversation. I barely got my questions out, and Shaq was yes, sir, and no, sir, for the entire 45-minute session, occasionally asking, asking Mr. Russell for his advice on most things not related to basketball. We should all hope to be lucky enough to have someone so big make us feel so small. And our... Tribute for Nichelle Nichols comes from the New York Times. Its posting date was August 2nd. 
Michelle Nichols helped show America a different future. As Lieutenant Uhuru on Star Trek and an advocate for inclusiveness in the U.S. space program, Nichols made an indelible impact on our collective imagination. She walks in beauty like the night. A grinning Spock greets Lieutenant Uhuru with a line of Byron. At one point, in their decades of shared Star Trek adventures. Now, this was way, way back when Leonard Nimoy's Spock occasionally grinned. But walk with me here. Even the alien knew a queen when he saw one. And what a queen! Those boots, that dress, that eye makeup, that glorious voice. Michelle Nichols, the woman who brought Uhura to life, died last week at the age of 89. Her contribution to the collective imagination of America, whether on television screen or in her real life, cannot be overstated. With not a hair out of place and fabulous earrings dangling, she was communications officer, fourth in command of the Federation Starship USS Enterprise in the 23rd century. She was the embodiment of a declaration splashed across billboards decades later, there are black people in the future. When Star Trek debuted on NBC in September 1966, Uhura's very presence hit the audience like a thunderbolt. At the time, black people were in a very literal and ultimately existential fight for autonomy of their bodies and souls. It was the era of marches, freedom rides, and sit-ins. Malcolm X was already dead. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. was still preaching. Black people of all abilities and professions were still being relegated to the corners of restaurants, hotels, and offices. Black women, if ever mentioned in the larger media, were portrayed as either loud, undignified troublemakers, or genial, overweight maids and nannies who supposedly delighted in doting on white folks' children. Out of this madness Uhuru appeared, a vision in red and black, beautiful, smart as hell, and not interested in nobody's nonsense. Her name means freedom in Swahili, and for a generation she symbolized that, the freedom to be seen and appreciated for your talents, rather than being seen as a liability because of your color. I am too young to have seen Star Trek on NBC. I wasn't born until the 1970s. I came to the franchise when I was in college in Philadelphia in the early 1990s. Philly TV was a Trek haven at the time. Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine were in first runs. The older episodes of Next Generation were already in syndication five nights a week, and the original series was on every Saturday afternoon. At first, I mainly complained about what Uhura didn't do. She wasn't one of the big three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, so she was rarely in a spotlight role. This was true of women in general in the original series, of course, and that didn't get thoroughly fixed as a franchise problem until Star Trek Discovery decades later. Yes, I know, the USS Voyager had a woman at the helm, and I also know that her command was questioned and challenged far more often than any captains of that time. Nobody dared roll up on Jean-Luc Picard like that. Captain Catherine Janeway was done wrong. As I went into the workforce myself, I acquired a healthier appreciation for Uhuru. 
I learned that oftentimes you just have to show up prepared and do your job and not expect to be the one out front or the one who's patted on the back. Be prepared to take the helm if you have to, but don't make a big deal about it. Run your business, not your mouth. And I thought about what Nichols must have experienced over the years, being feted for being a part of this hopeful, exciting vision of the future, yet still having to fight for screen time and inclusion in the 1960s present. Parentheses. The discrepancy was not lost on her, as she recalled many times. She planned to leave the series after the end of the first season and return to Broadway until her biggest fan, a preacher of some renown named Martin Luther King, talked her out of it. In parentheses. Once the show ended, Nichols continued to be a catalyst for inclusion. In the 1970s, she went on a nationwide tour of universities and professional organizations, encouraging the country's top women and people of color who were scientists, engineers, and mathematicians to apply for the astronaut program. And they listened. Charles Bolden, a former Marine Corps major general who flew on four space shuttle missions and became NASA's administrator for eight years, credited Nichols' tour with giving him the idea to apply. Mae Jemison, the first African-American female astronaut, often cited Nichols as an inspiration. As a result of her tour, people like Sally Ride, Judith Resnick, Frederick Gregory, and Ronald McNair all became astronauts. In a 2011 interview with Nichols, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said that thanks to her efforts... The Space Shuttle program was the first American astronaut program that better reflected America. Yes, the astronauts are the ones who took the tests, trained their bodies, made the sacrifices, and flew among the stars. But everything that flies has wind beneath its wings. Nichols helped provide that wind. First to a television show and a concept that grew into a multi-million dollar global franchise, and then to the real-life space organization that will maybe, eventually, figure out how to build that fictional starship enterprise. She shifted what we as a people thought was possible. There is no greater gift a performer can give. And that brings me to the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funding from the city and county of Broomfield. If you enjoyed this program please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.